I'm Jean Phillips and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm in San Antonio for the School Reform Initiative's fall meeting. This annual conference is focused on creating brave spaces to surface inequity and examine our biases and assumptions so that we can ensure our teaching practices help all students learn. I'm here with Tara Lynch. We'll be talking about her book, Protocols in the Classroom. She's written this book with co-authors David Allen, Tina Blythe, and Alan Dichter. Tara is not just an author, she's also an educator who has a wealth of experience in using protocols with students. Thanks for joining me, Tara. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Tara Lynch, and I am a learning specialist, and I'm a teacher, and I'm a dyslexic advocate. And I am also an author now. Congratulations on your book. It just came out like a month or so ago? It came out at the end of the summer, yes. Excellent. Well, it was perfect timing for me because I teach collaborative practices. I teach people how to use protocols. And we often encourage people to use protocols with students. And this book is really a roadmap for that. Well, that's good to hear. I also, um, another hat that I wear is, is working with um, teachers and coaching and um, so often what comes up when I'm working with adults is, it sounds like something I can use in the classroom. And so um, over time, during the debrief, I add a step and do uses. So what are some uses with adults? What are some uses with children? And so that allowed, that, that sort of led to, why don't we have a book about using protocols in the classroom? Excellent. Well, I'm really glad it exists. I've pointed a lot of people to it. And I want to start the conversation by just asking why. Why bother with protocols with students? Mm. Okay, great question. <laughs> and I was thinking, is it the same answer as using protocols with adults? And to a certain extent, it is. It's a way to focus conversation. It's a way to frame ideas to be using time efficiently um, to help children with expressive language. I find that having the ordered steps and the clarity of the formatting even can help students who might otherwise struggle to know what the expectations are for time, for their role, what's coming next, what's coming, what, uh, how long might this take. Um, so I find it sort of provides a scaffold for kids in the classroom. And then uh, it also builds a lot of habits that they can use in other, in other areas of life. So that's a nice part about using protocols with kids. Let's just back up for a minute for people who aren't at all familiar with protocols. When we say protocol, what do you mean um, specifically? Not a straitjacket. <laughs> I think there's a real uh, misunderstanding that a protocol is a series of steps that you must do for the sake of the protocol. And for me, it's really not so much about the steps as much as um, the, your, your group, the group that you're working with and how might... This, this particular um, protocol or way of uh, talking about an idea um, or discussing an idea or delving into different ideas, how might this series of steps provide support for a class um, and for individuals of the class to not only improve their own learning and understanding of something, but be part of a group and push the group's thinking as well. So I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is that protocols are structures that support learning, but also that protocols are their own learning. 
that learning to do the protocol also teaches you these other skills around communication and collaboration that you wouldn't get at without that structure. Yes, and actually, as you say that, it also uh, makes me think about the importance of the debrief in, in ways that protocols are learning structures and they're flexible, and I think that the debrief is the key piece of that. Um, the individual who speaks in the debrief and those who listen to each other are able to then change next time how things went to the particular needs of that group. And I think that's really the beauty um, of using protocols with kids. It gives them agency to make decisions about how things are going to run in the classroom. I love that. We're going to talk more about the debrief later. Um, I know you teach in Texas, Mm -hmm. where we are now, but um, the audience for this podcast is Vermont. And in Vermont, Vermont educators... Um, A lot of Vermont educators are familiar with using protocols for staff meetings or in professional learning communities, Um, and you're giving us some good reasons to use them with students, and one of the connections I see is with Vermont's um, transferable skills, which is our sort of version of 21st century skills. Um, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about those kind of skills like communication, clear and effective communication, we call it, or collaboration, or... um, Uh, problem solving and how you think protocols connect with those kind of what we used to think of as soft skills. Yeah, I'd love to. And that actually reminds me of some research that I did for a um, children's museum and the focus on STEAM and the idea of STEAM being science, technology, engineering, art, and math, um, and how important those 21st century skills are to pull them together. So you can be a great engineer, but without the ability to be a flexible thinker, to be open to new ideas, to be open to feedback, to give feedback to others, um, to work within a group to get a process done, you can't really be a successful engineer. And that's true of all those different silos within the STEAM um, term. Uh, and so what's great about protocols is that it allow, the, the process itself does allow students to practice all of those different skills, and it can be pretty explicit. I mean, in even in the upper levels, but even in elementary, I mean, in elementary school for sure, but even in middle and high school, I've used sentence starters to help students begin to um, to use feedback phrases or to ask for further clarification because that doesn't always come naturally. And so then you get you can get stuck if you're not able to ask for what you need or ask for more information to further understand a problem. So for me, thinking about the context in which I work, a lot of times we feel really confident in our content areas that we teach, and we don't feel as confident in how do we teach these 21st century skills or transferable skills. And this feels like a great toolbox through which you can teach uh, these portable, transportable skills that, that cross disciplines and cross out into the real world. I think there's a beautiful quote about this on... Yeah, I'll, I'll just start from, I'll start from the top. Sometimes framed as the four C's, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity, these skills are increasingly recognized as essential for success in school, college, the workplace, and society. Such skills are the stock in trade of protocols which push students to articulate their thinking, listen carefully to the ideas of others, and work collaboratively to address key questions and challenges. They foster students' understanding of key aspects of collaboration, such as presenting their work to peers, asking thoughtful questions of others, providing feedback to one another, etc. So yeah, that quote is similar to, or to, or, to what we were talking about. And I really love um, the quote at the end, 
by Emma Rossi. Uh, once students are familiar with the protocol, they feel confident about how to run the discussion, which frees them up to be bold in what they choose to contribute. And that idea of students um, running the classroom, owning the classroom, is so powerful uh, and a reason and something that protocols really help with. And that idea of being bold. I mean, I just think that's what I wanted my students to be bold, whether it's in the content, in their thinking, and I'm, or in advocacy for themselves or for the people around them. I love that. I also think about um, protocols are a really great construction that allow you to do deep thinking um, because of the constraints. Yeah, I agree that um, having constraints can be liberating uh, because you don't have to worry or think or spend energy about what might be coming next. Um, I think, um, I, and I keep talking about the debrief, but the, de the debrief too can help um, with equilibrium where sometimes we do need to loosen the constraints a little bit because of the topic or the experience with the group or a lot of other reasons. Uh, the second part of the book, the second section, I think, you get into the section called Getting Going. And you start with choosing a protocol, which is, as somebody who works with adults, is a really challenging process. Um, but you organize your protocols around these two categories that I found really useful and thoughtful. One is purposes and one is habits. And I wondered if you wanted to talk us through your thinking in terms of organizing protocols that way. Sure. Um, the idea of purpose is probably something familiar to the people who are listening, since um, anything you're doing in the classroom, the more clear your purpose, the better, the more clearly you articulate it to your students, the why, the more buy-in I think you tend to get. Um, and then I know that for me as a, as a planner, I tend to over-plan and I can go in 500 directions. But to have that clear purpose stated helps, pr provides the constraint that I need to, to stay focused and, and, uh, and get what I need done. So. So what are some of the purposes that these protocols address? Well, my favorite one is to build community, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is such an important, um, to me, is one of the most important pieces of, of being in a classroom with students. Um, how to be a good listener is another purpose, how, and not just in the sense of listening and repeating, but listening to understand the perspectives of others. Again, to me, um, being part, to be an individual in this group classroom, it's sort of an organic family kind of situation, and so um, it's really important to understand perspectives of others, to know they exist, and then to move deeper into appreciation, or to move to a, to a point um, of trust that you can disagree um, or push back. So, so that, that's another one of the important purposes. Um, and then going back to the idea of, um, of self-advocacy and agency in students, too, I think um, protocols, you may choose uh, to help students speak up, use their voice in different ways, um, expressive language, and th those are all really important for the classroom and beyond. So as a teacher, when I'm thinking about content, I'm also thinking about the um, the group dynamics, what the group needs, and sort of in, in thinking um, when I'm thinking about the when I'm thinking about how I'm going to bring some content in and have students process it. I will also have a, a lens of looking at it in terms of what what does this protect particular class need um, practice or um, or even to show off about, you know, what can they show that they've learned in terms of some of these habits as well. 
So you've addressed purposes. You've unpacked that for us. Now unpack that word habits. Oh, yeah. So habits. We went back and forth about whether we should call them habits or skills or what were they. But habits, um, the idea of something that you practice um, to get better at, um, to become less forced and more routine, more natural. Um, those habits are baked into the protocols, um, not necessarily explicitly, and so we wanted to pull them out, um, thinking of teachers in, class, in classrooms in mind, um, just for the very reason that they are transferable. They can be used across classrooms. And in, I guess in my dreamy world of dreams, um, students are using protocols in various classrooms so that they can also um, instinctively see, oh, this works in science and in English. Um, and maybe they'll find themselves in another situation this school day where they might use some of the habits like, could you tell me more about what you, what you mean by that saying? <laughs> um, so, yeah, those, those habits are, I guess, even, yeah, I mean, certainly throughout adult life, too. We're just always using them, so always fine-tuning them. Nice. So could you name some of those habits more specifically? Yes, I can. So I, I think I talked earlier for the for one of the purposes of understanding others' perspectives. Um, that's one of the habits that comes up in compass points and fears and hopes. Um, let's see, listening we also talked about. Um, and there are a couple of protocol-like activities I love for that one, too, you, you, involving using names. So even just having kids call on each other when there are multiple um, answers and calling them by name, I think it's just such a wonderful way to acknowledge uh, and, and listen to others. So you have to pay attention who, has, who said what, who hasn't. Um, so listening is one. Oh, making connections. So I think one... Um, one thing that I think of when planning is how much is lower order thinking, how much is higher order thinking, and how do we get students to move from that factual, uh, receive information, give information back, how do we move them up to um, comparing, contrasting, analyzing. So those are some habits also that, that are part of protocols um, and also certainly transferable. One protocol that didn't make it in here that I love is um, Atlas looking at data, which maybe some of your teachers will be familiar with. It's one of my personal favorites, and, and what I like about it is that it helps people move from factual to more complex understanding. And uh, I was able to use it after we had put in the draft <laughs> with some of, my, some of my Spanish students, and it was just so cool to see them analyze. Some, so they had asked each other questions about likes and dislikes of sports in Spanish, and then to see them um, do their analysis of those C's and NOS was pretty cool. Here, here are their various interpretations. Yeah, that's really where the learning is, right? When you can take it up to those steps. Yeah, yeah. So and I love having a tool it. that helps you do that, right? Because that's hard work. It is, it is. And it, yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard to break down just conceptually for a teacher and then to relay that information and help students grasp it can be hard too. So Having it laid out sure does help. <laughs> so choosing a protocol is part of the battle. But um, for a lot of us, especially when we're new to facilitating protocols, that's, a, that's tricky business. And it can feel really risky as a teacher to step into this space where you're um, 
making space for students. And so you have a section in here that I really appreciate for that, that um, outlines some clear steps and tips for facilitation. So I'd just like to hear from your own perspective of um, running protocols with students, uh -huh. some, some good suggestions for people who are new to facilitating protocols with students. Sure. I mean, I think um, we have numbers on our, uh, in our favor in classrooms where we've got 180 days with students. And so when we're working with teachers, we don't usually get that much time. So I think um, in some ways students can be more forgiving because we have more chances to work with them. And keeping in mind that there's not usually just one protocol that will fit the situation, but there's a variety that will give you um, feedback or information um, that's useful. Um, it, and, and you may find at the end that something else could have worked better perhaps, but for the most part, I, I try to stay away from just choosing the one protocol and know that many of them will work. Um, and, and going back to that purpose, so which one of these fits most with the purpose, and it doesn't have to be a perfect fit. And then what was the second part of your question? Some facilitation tips. Oh yeah, facilitation tips. Well, um, one mistake that I made um, with a gallery walk with, with sixth graders was that I wasn't specific enough in how, uh, what, in, in how I requested they provide feedback. Um, so there was a round of very vague and sixth grade-ish terminology on the, um, on the posters that students had made. So that was a learning experience for me and the students. I need to be more clear, which in teaching I can always be more clear. Um, and I tried to frame the questions um, at the end so the students could see the value of giving more specific feedback rather than generic kind of goofy feedback. <laughs> so a tip is to be really clear, and when it doesn't work, think about the questions that you can ask that um, might, might, or that might help the students understand why you would do it differently next time. So what I'm hearing is like that it's okay to be transparent in your facilitation and say, oh, I didn't really do a good job of that. What might I do differently next time? And yeah. solicit their feedback. I think that's great. And one that I use a lot, I mean, again, because I think giving clear directions is tricky, especially at the end of a day of teaching, um, is I, there are a couple of students in particular who are great at clarifying questions. So I'll say, I think I'm being clear with this. But can you ask me some clarifying questions so I make sure that I, so that I can make it even clearer? Or if it starts going in a wonky direction, I can say, "Okay, wait a minute. I don't think I was clear enough. Who can help me articulate this?" So I love asking the students um, for help. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's a transparent and being transparent. I mean, why not? <laughs> so that reminds me that I think this is true for adults, and I know it's true for students as well. That at the that the first time you do a protocol, you hate it. It's like a brand new pair of hiking boots. It chafes. It's uncomfortable. And you have to really do a protocol or do protocols a couple times before you start to see the value. And so one of the things that I do when I facilitate with people who are new to protocols is just to own that at the beginning. This is going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to notice that it's uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and I want you to notice that and think about how did the discomfort or the structure that felt uncomfortable serve our learning? Right, I agree. And we keep coming back to the debrief um, and the importance 
of the debrief. Um, oh, well, of setting expectations at the beginning, the why we're doing this and, and, and why it might feel uncomfortable. But then coming to the end and seeing how uncomfortable were they or were they not. And so um, that, that, that process of setting up and, and finishing is, is a super important one for sure and definitely helps with kids adapting to protocols. Um, sometimes, I'm trying to think, I don't, I, I think sometimes I get more pushback from adults than from kids using protocols. So sometimes I, sometimes I will use different names to warm them up and then explain what a protocol is. So there's another little tip or trick. <laughs> don't call it a protocol. Uh, I really appreciate that you keep coming back to the debrief. I think it's the easiest part to skip. Yeah. And yet... It's really the richest space for learning, Yeah, um, for learning how the structure supported you or didn't support you and how you might do it differently, but also for like, what helps us learn? It's a great way to be metacognitive. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, that timing piece is something that I think teachers feel more constrained by in the classroom than in professional development because we really have just that set number of minutes. Um, sometimes in PD you can go over by five minutes or, you know, um, there is no bell. I, it depends. Um, but, um, yeah, I think there's a certain mathematical quality also to doing protocols in the classroom, which also comes with practice where you think about how much time you actually have, um, um, think about changing the timing based on what you have and then um, being keeping um, sort of knowing which parts need to be a little bit longer than the others rather than just dividing them equally into three minute segments and that kind of thing and also in the, in the midst um, if you know being transparent with the students to say you know we're, our time is up for this section but I hear so much deep conversation that I'd like to extend this and pull back on the next step. But I really try not, I mean, I try not to take it from the debrief. However, I do have a couple of tricks for, for um, time there. I'll use whiteboard, like the individual whiteboards, and have kids write their debrief. And then I just take a picture of everybody's on their way out um, and share it that way. Rather than doing a go-around, that can be a quicker way. Or they can email me um, and... Yeah, so, so doing a written debrief can save some time when you're really squeezed, but you know you cannot, um, you can't sacrifice the debrief. But the, the beauty of that is then you have the words for the students to look at the next time you meet and do some analysis of or use as a segue to the next, to the next part. Oh, that's great. I was going to ask you, so do you circle back to those the next day or the next time you have kids? And it sounds like you do. Yes. And then... Um, yeah, I, 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 the other reason that I use the debrief um, and explaining the why and sort of circling back and tracking it is that not every protocol is everyone going to like to the same degree, and that's okay. That's not the purpose is that everyone is going to love it each time, but that everybody brings different strengths and weaknesses to it. And sometimes it's going to be easy peasy, you're going to love it. Other times it's going to be harder, but we're all as a group moving and working together um and we and we do it in different ways yeah and learning is often uncomfortable and That's protocols are places where <laughs> learning happens so i'm going to read a quote um on from page 30 
protocols are thought demanding exercises requiring habits of behavior and thinking skills that may pose challenges for students. Some of those habits and skills include articulating ideas out loud, speaking within time constraints, staying focused and resisting digressions, following a sequence of steps in a disciplined way, formulating questions, listening attentively, and understanding others' perspectives. Um, as I read down the list, I think of the role of learning specialist. That's one of the things that I do in working with kids um, with dyslexia, with ADHD, with other um, brain-based um, differences. And um, what I, as I was saying earlier, protocols offer a lot for those students. And um, so I was thinking of, of um, speaking within time constraints, staying focused and resisting digressions, following a sequence of steps. So these are actually, these are some of the habits and skills that everyone benefits from, but I think it especially supports um, some, of, some of those students. Uh, and I was thinking of some of my English language learners for the first bullet, articulating ideas aloud. Um, and not just English language learners, but um, it can be intimidating to speak to a group. And so um, that's where some of the protocol-like activities come in handy and um, where first you're speaking to one person or maybe a triad before speaking to the whole group. But through repetition and practice and habit and scaffolding, the kids become comfortable speaking to the whole group. So before we move into that, I just want to say that um, these habits and skills, uh, the demanding, um, uh, the way that protocols demand of us these things, these are not just hard for students. These are really hard for adults as well yeah, uh, in schools. And so I just really appreciate how clearly you all unpacked that. And then this whole chapter is about uh, developing buy-in. And I would really love for you to walk through um, some of the exercises that help students practice the skills they need in order to participate well in protocols, but that they're smaller exercises. I feel like these are really great differentiation strategies, and I'd just love to hear you unpack a few of them. So unpack a few of these or unpack a few of the next, the next page, turning the page. Yeah, so thinking about the exercises for developing the skills that are smaller. Absolutely. So, um, so I'm going to start with postcards on page 33. What I love about this is um, it's very flexible. It can be used as a, um, at the start of the class to kind of get kids predicting. It can be used at the end as a sum up. Um, I love having a toolkit that's flexible. What I also like about postcards is the visual element, which is such a great way to get buy-in for a response from a student, um, as opposed to, say, text, which sometimes provides buy-in. And, and postcards can be used with text as well. So can you tell us what it looks like? Sure. What it looks like is um, you have a set of images. I sometimes have them thematically based, um, based on what we're talking about in class. Or sometimes if my purpose is more about figurative language or more about building community, I'll use some um, this beautiful set of postcards from Magnum Photography. They're large format. They're like beautiful colors. And um, they represent people of different ages and different groupings all over the world. So, um, so I'll spread those out on the table or on the desks and have students do a little quiet think time is always helpful, I think, and um, come up with some kind of, it can be a, a connection, a question. Um, I actually used them recently for students to practice weather, like using in my Spanish class weather terms. 
So then they had a they had a chance to think about what they were going to say, and then they turned to partner and said, video or whatever the particular phrase was. So that's like a really quick and easy use of postcards that gets um, gives students something to talk about, kind of a, an entryway into conversation, um, get some talking to the person next to them, um, and listening to the person next to them. And um, so that's one way that you can use postcards. That's interesting. I love to use images, uh, and I love to use them as metaphors. Yeah. Um, but I don't use postcards. I've made my own cards from National Geographic magazines. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really cheap way. Rubber cement, National Geographic yeah. magazines, and index cards is a really cheap way to make some images that you can use in lots of different Yeah, I, I'm kind of chuckling because I um, have a stack of old magazines that my students use for collages, but it was getting a little a little out of hand. So I went through and pulled out some of the more striking images and they're on my desk to cut and put on construction paper <laughs> to yeah. use in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Folks, as a librarian, I will just say, check your libraries. They they usually have some old issues of National Geographics. Uh, oh, that they're willing to part with? That they're often willing to part with. Check your school libraries, your public libraries, and, um, and look around and see if you can get some Yeah, books. and that makes me think of um, my incredible library in Austin, Texas, um, my public library, they've got a great Spanish language selection of magazines, and I will take pictures um, of them to use in class, and I, you, I've just thought, oh, the next time with postcards, maybe I'll use something from an advertisement for a magazine. It's got more text because my students are ready to discuss more text, so thanks. Uh, let's uh, unpack one more exercise that gets people ready for protocols. Okay. Get students ready, I should say, for protocols. So I think um, I'm, I'm debating between turn and talk, repair, share, and warm and cool. But since we've already talked about postcards and having that individual turn, I, I kind of treated it as a turn and talk. Of course, you can do it as a whole group. It's super flexible that way. But I think I'm going to go to warm and cool. Um, and what I, the way that this prepares students for protocols is giving them practice and feedback. So in a couple of ways, starting with warm feedback and then moving to cool so that the person is more willing to hear the cool um, is just a, is a, is a strategy or a habit that kids can use. Um, so warm feedback, meaning things that are, are positive, things are, that are good in the piece or in the work, cool feedback areas for improvement? Yes, thank you for that, for clarifying. Um, and so sometimes we'll... Sometimes I will frame the debrief in terms of warm and cool, the debrief from the class, not necessarily from a protocol, to have them used to, to um, using those terms and framing feedback. Our school does a debrief at the end of every class uh, across, the, across the board. So that's one way to get uh, the students practicing with warm and cool feedback on the class. So it's a little... Um, Almost, well, sometimes the sometimes it's about me and my lesson plan. Sometimes it's about the other students. <laughs> so it can be safer to talk about me versus a peer, but um, they get to the point where they're happy to talk about a peer and or themselves um, and their own, how well they felt they did in the class. Um, and so, I, you know, just being able to, this is another one of those multi-purpose, short, um, but, but, but meaningful ways to get students used to more complex and uh, more multi-step 
kinds of protocols. If, when warm and cool, when, when giving feedback becomes more part of their day, then we can help, help them break down some of their questioning about the piece to get to that feedback. We can have them um, also use the feedback and then show where their evidence is. And then that also can become a pre-writing activity. It's using that, but, you know, making a statement using evidence is such an important piece. So they're, you know, just a simple warm and cool feedback, um, whether it's, whether it's um, to me about the class, to a peer about um, some of their work, or about their own reflection on work, are all great ways to help them get into some of the longer protocols. So this really intrigues me um, as we think about transferable skills in Vermont. Um, several of them involve revision and iteration. So self-direction, perseverance, asks kids to think about how they might get better over time. Mm -hmm. um, collaboration asks us to give and receive feedback. And thinking about us moving towards a proficiency-based or competency-based system mm -hmm. where we're really asking kids to be able to um, take feedback from a, a teacher, for teachers to really think about the feedback for growth that they're giving to students, mm -hmm. as students really think about their, their learning as a growth process. Yeah. Warm and cool feedback feels like a really great skill for kids as, they, as we transform our learning to a proficiency-based system, yes. as we transform our system towards a proficiency or competency-based system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, um, because you have to be specific, you have to point out the specific competencies so the student knows where they are, where they've moved from, and where they're heading to. So that very specific feedback versus, hey, great job. And if you're able to give really specific feedback, you might be more able to receive it. Yeah, and also um, I, there's an idea that you didn't, I don't, I don't know that we mentioned earlier, but of flexible thinking, the importance of flexible thinking. Say more about that. Um, so... I'm, um, so some of the students I work with really see the world in black and white, binary, and so um, so help and, and the world doesn't usually work out that way. So helping students think more broadly about um, the world around them, you know, some of that comes in with listening to the perspectives of others. Um, but being a flexible thinker, like being open to another's idea in order to change your idea or change what you're doing. Um, is, is, is an important um, habit and skill, certainly for working with other people. But even if you're working on your own, there are some things that happen um, that you don't have control over, and so you have to change what you're doing. Think about um, students who struggle with executive function, and if they've made a plan and it doesn't go as planned, they might just give up or feel overwhelmed. But having that flexible thinking, it's like, okay, this is what happened. What am I going to do to continue on to my goal? Uh, and so it can be, again, coming from someone else. Hey, you didn't, uh, you forgot to include the poster in this project. Like, oh, class is next period. What am I going to do? How am I going to think this about? Or even in the planning stage, um, thinking about different ways to achieve a goal. I mean, I think those are all flexible thinking pieces. And if someone gives you feedback, um, valuable feedback, you've got to be able to internalize it and then make a change based yes. on it. Yeah. The more we can practice that, the better, right? Because we need students taking feedback from teachers, but also from each other. Yes, for yeah. sure. And we do that in the world. That's another yeah. transferable skill. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, you've shared some examples, and I just think your examples are so valuable. I really want you just to tell another story 
about um, a protocol in action in a classroom, maybe in the middle grades. A lot of the protocols in this book are really familiar to me, but one that is new to me is the Fears and Hopes Protocol. Could you give me just a snapshot of what that looks like in the classroom? Sure. Um, Last year, I started mid-year in a Spanish class, and so the first thing I did was Fears and Hopes because I was coming, anytime you follow another teacher, um, it can be a little tricky, and so I wanted to sort of make the way smoother for myself and for the students by allowing them to articulate their fears about me as a teacher (laughs) and the change. You know, it's really about change, I think. Um, And then to tell me some of their hopes so that I can then help them, uh, help to allay their fears and fulfill their hopes. So one example is, what what came up really is that the the students were worried that I was going to be mean, strict, give too much homework, um, and what they hoped is that I would be fun, that I would allow them to keep the sticker system that they had had, which I really wasn't interested in keeping, but in seeing their hopes, like how many, seeing the patterns around the sticker system um, made me realize this is really important to them and I'm going to maintain it as part of this transition. So it was, in a way, I knew I wasn't going to be mean and strict, but to allow them to surface that fear and then the result, and I could acknowledge where that might be coming from and I could let them know I probably won't be mean and strict. It hasn't really been part of my teaching persona so far. Um, and then they're able to see it. That also is was a really great way um, to lead to norms. And so based on their hopes for the class, that it would be fun, we'd have a sticker system, we'd make food, Um, they created the class norms. And one of my favorite ones was um, by a boy named Finn who said, let's see, have fun, but be mature. (laughs) Which for a sixth grader, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. So, um, so, so each class had their own norms. They're a little bit different though. There were similar patterns in the in the classes that I took over about their fears and hopes. Um, this also, I brought in before end of year assessments too. Like, what are they really worried about? Which one's going to say, it's not even going to be on the test, don't worry. And which ones tell me, all right, we need to spend time focusing. So that's a, those are two examples of using fears and hopes recently in the classroom. I love those as ways to really surface um, the unsaid things in the classroom and help kids make space for kids to say them and feel heard. I think that feeling heard is such a powerful thing. I'll give an example, and this protocol is not in the book, but it's one of my favorites to use with students is affinity mapping. Oh, yeah. And um, so at a time when my students, maybe it was early spring, and they were starting to disengage, mm-hmm. uh, instead of clamping down, I, we took a whole class and we affinity mapped, what does engaged learning look like? And, um, and so once we had, you know, they had their little sticky notes and then we organized them into groups, into clusters, mm-hmm. we could think about what could they do to make our learning more engaging and what could I do? And so one of the things that came up was field trips. Great. Let's figure out how we can, that's both relevant to the work we're doing together and um, that we could organize some trips outside of school that would make it more engaging for them. And some of it was on me and some of it was on them, yes. and, but they co-constructed it. Mm-hmm. And so, and it really made a huge difference. That's cool. That actually reminds me, um, 
just in terms of the inquiry process, I had some students affinity mapping, and one particular student really had trouble making the categories. Um, she had really broad categories, and I saw patterns coming in underneath them, and some of the other kids did. So it was kind of a it was a it raised a question for me, like what's what's keeping the student from seeing these smaller categories? And so that became um, part of my process as a teacher to understanding the student. Uh, I love that. That leads right to the next thing I want to really discuss, which is you've got this whole chapter on getting better with protocols, and we have talked about the debrief a lot, which is one great way to get better at protocols. But I love this section, and I haven't really heard people dealing with this before. I feel like this is new thinking for me about how you document the learning um, when you're doing a protocol and how protocols can be used as a way to document learning. And so I'd love to hear uh, what this looks like in practice. Yeah, this is one that I'm working on as well. Um, and um, there's an educator whose blog I follow, Angela Stockman, who is just incredible about documenting learning. She has a Reggio background and pulls that in. And so I'm actually really trying to work on this one because I take a lot of photographs. Um, luckily, phones allow us to do that pretty easily. And because this, um, in my particular school, the kids have access to laptops. So we can document a lot through typing and uh, sharing via Google Drive. Um, but this is, this is something I'm trying to figure out how to do more long term. I mean, certainly we have posters on the walls that we refer to. I had mentioned norms as one of them. Um, at the beginning of this past year, I did compass points with my students, my new students to the school. Um, to I had met them before. Um, so to understand our different class dynamics, and those are still hung, and sometimes we refer to those. So there's kind of the idea of leaving a footprint in the classroom environment so that you can refer to it, reflect on it, and go back to it in that way. But I'm really trying to find out more of ways to document digitally um, and have it be useful and not just stored somewhere in a drive. So that one I'm still working on. I think blogging might be part of it, having the students blog as well. Um, there's a math teacher I work with who has them blog that I need to check in with because of all the privacy and permissions. But that's what I'm still working on too. Well, and I love um, sometimes, like a text rendering protocol um, is a, a, a great protocol that ends up with some charted phrases and words that yes. can be really useful to return to that are important, say, in a text. I also have um, really loved charting questions. A lot of protocols ask us to take a round mm -hmm. and ask questions. Yes. And those can be really meaty things to return to again and again and say, have we, there are sort of like essential questions that we can return to and say, have yes. we answered this? Do we have new thinking around this question? Yes. And so posting those around the classroom too. Absolutely. And But then I think there's a point where, and I haven't figured out, I like systems, like um, you, there's also a point where the, the documentation on the wall can be, overwhelming and overstimulating. So then I think that's part of, uh, and I share a classroom, so that's also part of the balance of, those are some of the constraints of sharing classrooms, so only having certain parts of the wall, um, and then also when to retire things and how. You know, do we do it with a celebration? Do I just put it in the recycle? You know, um, does it go into portfolios? Those are some of the questions, too, in terms of learning and um, yeah. And so that raises for me this idea of uh, whole class documentation and then individual documentation. In Vermont, um, we're really um, 
focused on personalized learning plans or portfolios for mm-hmm. students. And it seems to me like some um, of the debrief material and some of the images that kids might want to take, pictures of either their postcard or of the phrases from a text rendering mm-hmm. as evidence and then reflect on that in a debrief online. Yeah, I, I agree. And that, and, and adding to that, um, going back to the norms, I mean, I would, I, I think... Um, during the debrief, having students reflect on the norms and kind of look over time, a few points over time because you do grow so much um, over the year. And it's really important to acknowledge that growth and that hard work and the building of, of habits. Or how you've become a better listener mm-hmm. or how you've become better at giving warm and cool yes. feedback yeah. or the ways in which you are more analytical because of your experience Absolutely. Uh, with the steps of the protocol. And even volume, you know, volume of response. I mean, there's so many ways to look at growth and to um, use digital. There are so many ways that digital tools allow us to, um, to go back and and keep learning. Yeah. Uh, that makes me think that um, doing a protocol multiple times with a group is a really rich place, too, to notice how do we get better at it. Mm-hmm. So doing that, save the last word for me, say, with different texts over time, and part of that debrief is, how are we better at this than we used to be? So, yeah, say, so save the last word for me. Um, I, I just love that idea of building, taking a text and building upon it. Um, it's, it validates, I guess, I guess what I appreciate it, it's not just I'm reading this and I'm interpreting it and, and I'm good to go, but the value add of others reflecting back, the value of others' thoughts about it. Again, it goes back to that idea of protocols help the individual learner, but also help the group. Um, and anything about repetition or um, any, any multiple ways to look at a task, Test, uh, text I always appreciate, yeah, especially for my struggling readers. So that leads me to this uh, next section in your book where you talk about the relationships between protocols and other structures. I know in Vermont um, we, have, um, we, have, we have these wonderful students at Harwood Union High School who teach other students mm-hmm. how to engage in Harkness or Socratic seminars, mm-hmm. um, which I just so admire. I saw them present um, recently at the Rolling Conference, and I was so impressed with their skill at teaching yes. teachers and students to use those structures. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything about how protocols are complementary to these other student voice structures that we see in schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, that that section came up in, as part of our ongoing discussion of what is and isn't a protocol. And some of the schools that I work with in New York City are using restorative practices. And um, and so part of our discussion, well, there are some similarities in terms of the group, in terms of voice, in terms of expectations for, um, for the purpose of coming together, but that that's part of a much bigger program. So, um, so I think that, um, I think that most of my experience is really with protocols themselves, so I don't have that much to add, but I, th- but I, I certainly learned with the other authors more about, about, different, um, about different things kids are doing. Uh, and these structures, it seems to me, are really like, um, it's not an either or, that um, the way we use protocols can completely help um, kids get better 
at Harkness discussions or Socratic seminars. Yeah. Uh, kids who are engaging in Harkness discussions and Socratic seminars are going to find a real affinity with protocols. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think, um, I think that question of what, what is and what isn't, that kind of definition, it's not that one is better than the other, it's just there are different ways to approach. And, um, and the more we can allow the students to reflect on that and use and see the different ways that they can move a group it is that I mean I love I want to I want to I want to see these students teaching mm-hmm. teachers I love it um, I also love just deep appreciation in this book for the way that you structure how you can move students to the facilitator role in protocols and I, I we're not going to talk further about that but just I love that it's in here and that as you gain experience as a class moving students to the center of that process is really yeah I, I I'm I'm a big Harry Wong fan <laughs> and that whole idea of the students doing the work is where the learning is and the students should be tired mm-hmm. not the teacher and I think that idea of decentralizing um the work the learning to the students is 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 what it's supposed to be about and then what an empowering feeling it is uh, to be a 12 year old or an 8 year old or a 16 year old running a 45 minute class and um and hearing in that debrief the growth that you were a part of it's pretty powerful that's a great way to end before we close, are there? I was thinking about other books I might suggest for people besides this wonderful book, Protocols in the Classroom, Tools to Help Students Read, Write, Think, and Collaborate. Some titles that came to mind as other places people might grow for, uh, might turn to for growth are the Facilitator's Book of Questions, oh, which has been a, a really invaluable tool in my toolbox. I love, uh, I love those concrete suggestions for when time goes, when someone goes off topic. They're very useful for children also. <laughs> right, yes. That's a good one. The whole, like, um, what do I do if somebody won't, you know, follow the structure uh-huh. of a protocol? Uh-huh. Those they are very go concrete. Off topic. Yeah. We run out of time. Yeah. Tara, thank you so much for taking the time in this busy conference to talk to me about this fabulous book and to... Um, really talk to our listeners about uh, what it looks like to use protocols in the classroom with students. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Tara Lynch for appearing on the show and talking with me about protocols in the classroom. If you're looking for a copy of Protocols in the Classroom, check your local library. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.